listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery Series and discuss it. And on today's episode, we are talking about the fifth book in the series, our introduction to Moose County, The (laughs) Cat Who Played Brahms. Now, when was this book published? 1987. Actually, the second book that came out in 1987. And the second book is going to be the next one we'll talk about. Exactly. Well, this is, is the first of the two that, the come, see, that yes, come out yes, in 1987. Yes. Um, they, they kind of overloaded, uh, front-loaded, there's the, there's the term, they front-loaded the series because when they came out in 1986 with The Cat Who Saw Red, they also republished the first three books in the series. Ah. The following year, then they published two books. And then after that, it settles into what becomes her standard of one book a year until uh, until 2007. Now, is there an audiobook of this? Still the same audiobook, still the same situation where it's only legally available on CD. Uh, now, before we take a look at this one, I think we should also do our usual clarification, this time much earlier than yes. we did the last yes, episode, that this is going to contain spoilers. So if you have not read... The Cat Who Played Brahms. Uh, We'll give you a second to go please read it. All right. Welcome back. Excellent. And if you've decided that you don't care and you you want the spoilers, come on in. We're happy to have you. Now, you have some notes about this uh, prior to the synopsis, and I would love to hear those. Yes. One of the things that occurred to me as I'm reading uh, The Cat Who Played Brahms and The Cat Who Saw Red back to back, I'm realizing that the writing styles are very distinctly different. Hmm. we with that i'm i'm starting to theorize that she actually wrote the cat who saw red in the 60s and really only revamped it for publication in 1986 when she found a new publisher and was encouraged the writing styles are distinctly different the quill she's writing in the book in this book um the cat who played brahms is a man who's very unhappy with city life he's not happy with his career's deflection versus the cat who saw red he's still hunting for that next story hunting for that next scoop hmm. and there's not really any kind of at least indicated event that would really change that. Um, It should also be pointed out one other thing. I did incorrectly state that The Cat Who Saw Red was the only award-nominated book in the series, but I was wrong. Apparently, this book, The Cat Who Played Brahms, was also nominated for an Anthony Award for Best Original Paperback, but unfortunately it also lost to, uh, this time, to a book called The Monkey's Raincoat by Robert Crace. So once again, losing out to another animal theme. Precisely. Now, the Anthony Award, we talked about The uh, the Cat Who Saw Red, that was up for an Edgar Award, which mm-hmm. is... Pretty much the, uh, you know, the, the pinnacle of mystery writing. Of mystery writing, yes. And then Anthony Award is for mystery writers as well, too, it looks as if. Uh, just doing a quick look up for it. It was named for uh, Anthony Bashur of the Mystery Writers Association. So, And it has a very unique category that's unlike any other award set. Um, whereas with the Edgar Awards, it's Best New Mystery, Best New Mystery Writer, things like that. With the Anthony Award, it actually has a category called best original paperback so any book that was designed to be um, um, any mystery that was designed to be published in paperback not as would later be the case hardcover followed by paperback Mm -hmm. um and and in general she didn't publish her books in hardback um until the very very end when that became a publishing most every book i've seen of hers is all in paperback yes Yes. primarily all. all of her books were done in paperback first so Great. that's our lovely little tangent into uh, some of the history of the cat who played Brahms. And now let's jump right into the synopsis Indeed. of the cat who played Brahms. So this book starts out, as I said, very differently from any of the previous books. 
We have a Quill who's very out of sorts with big city life. Instead of uh, sensing that familiarity that he does in previous books, he's feeling like a fish out of water. Like he's suddenly outgrown his current situation. Hmm. Um, however, his there there are still hints of uh, of 1960s sexism. His biggest complaints are that men are being moved to the women's department. And his beloved Grungy Press Club just underwent a major makeover due to the women, um, uh, due to the women getting on the cleaning committee, and it's now suddenly clean and respectable. They actually, you know, washed the walls, repainted, and sanded down the tables. Oh, well, how dare they? How dare they? <laughs> how dare they? They're actually serving salads on the menu. So, oh, well, that's just a travesty. No wonder he's so upset. Exactly. With a vinaigrette. Oh, oh my God. I know. How <laughs> will we ever survive? Anyway, so... The story turns a little bit when he says that he's been corresponding with an old friend of his mother's, and she has offered him a cabin in Moose County, 400 miles north of north of everywhere, for the <laughs> summer. And Quill jumps at the opportunity. He's decided he's going to write a book, and he's going to rest and recharge and write his book, so he buys a used car with uh, some leftover money, packs up the cats and his typewriter, and heads north for the summer. Nothing else besides the cats and typewriter. Pretty much. Cats, typewriter. He did, he did pack some more paper. Okay. Well, that well, you would need that to write a book. You would need that yes. to write a book, Yes. And it turns out to be fairly timely because once again, he's about to be homeless because Rosemary calls him and says, hey, by the way, Mouse House is being put up for sale and all the tenants have to move out by the end of the summer. Now, to clarify, a Rosemary from the previous book yes. was... Rosemary from the previous book is. Um, is, um, is his current paramour, um, the uh, the older woman that he uh, he started a relationship with at the end of The Cat Who Saw Red. It's nothing serious. He's not planning to propose marriage anytime soon. So he puts the cats... He, Loads the cats into the car. Actually, there's a funny scene where he's actually, in order to buy his used car, um, he is actually measuring the uh, the floor space between uh, the front seat and the back seat to make sure that it's big enough to accommodate the cat's commode. Oh. Um, it's very sweet. Very and then he complains sweet. that they never use it on the entire 400-mile trip. <laughs> because <laughs> cats. Cats. Because cats. Anyway. So he gets up to Moose County and he gets to meet Aunt Fanny, who is his mother's childhood friend, who now goes by Francesca and lives in Pickaxe, which is the county seat of Moose County. County seat. I see. Um, Quill (laughs) arrives meeting Aunt Fanny is a little bit of a shock. He's expecting a sweet old lady and he finds a spry, nearly nonagenarian, almost 90 year old, for those of you who don't know what a nonagenarian is. Um, yes, and yes, that's one of those things I had to make sure that I was looking up and pronouncing correctly. Um, mild dyslexia, I don't always manage to figure out what something sounds like just by looking at. So thank goodness I learned International Phonetic Alphabet while I was training mm. to be an opera singer. And that means that I can look at something in a dictionary and have a pretty good idea how it's supposed to be pronounced, but moving on. Oh, that's a word that I would definitely need a little bit of help on myself. So So anyway, so we've met a spry, nearly nonagenarian who wears turbans, satin cigarette pants, and patterned kimonos, and sounds like a -a pack-a-day smoker. Oh, and also carries a small gold pistol in her purse. So this is Norma Desmond. Yes, this is the Norma Desmond of pickaxe. (laughs) Um, And she lives in a giant stone mansion um, on the poshest street in town of Pickaxe. Pickaxe is not a big town, it sounds like. It's population 3,000, so it's, mm, okay. it's it's the county seat. It's the it's one of the larger cities in the area. As we learn more about the geography of, of Moose County and the neighboring counties, um, we find out that there's a slightly more populous county slightly to the south called Lockmaster, but Pickaxe <laughs> is actually the largest city in Moose County. 
There is so that. We meet Aunt Fan- so we meet Aunt Fanny, so and she's it, not the uh, she's delicate, not she's not delicate the delicate lady. flower that they thought he was. Um, <laughs> she's also assisted by her man of all work, who is Tom. Tom has a mysterious backstory, doesn't talk much, but can fix pretty much anything. Hmm. The uh, the cabin itself is on the shore of a lake, supposedly a hundred miles across from the Canadian border. Border beautiful, not for swimming. So cold, you go down once and never come back up, which is the conventional wisdom. Huh. So lots of snow runoff, um, never quite warms up. Sure. Not a uh, not a place you want to go swimming, we'll but apparently fun. great for fishing and for fishing and canoeing and all of those outdoorsy things. Just don't go overboard. Exactly. It's isolated. It's just rustic enough to still be comfortable to a city dweller, and it has easy access to the tourist town of Mooseville. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it is also too quiet for a city dweller, and Quill doesn't sleep well until a major storm rolls through. Ah. He also has, understandably, a problem with the friendly, quote-unquote, county country custom of leaving your doors unlocked. There's not actually even a locksmith in the county. Not just in Mooseville. In the entire county, there is no locksmith. So in all of Moose County, there's no locksmith. There is not a locksmith. This is a, this is, you know, it's supposed to be this friendly mentality of if your neighbor needs to borrow a cup of sugar, he just walks in your back door and comes and takes it. Sure. Um, with the expectation that you would do the same. But... Quill, being a city dweller, is a little bit right, suspicious. Right, a bit of, of a culture shock coming from a big city. Where Absolutely. it's just kind of, you're, you're not used to that kind of behavior. No. And there are some interesting signs of the times that uh, would not be a thing if we were uh, doing this in the exact modern day. But she's writing it as if it were the 80s. Um, and Quill is settling into his new home near Mooseville. Uh, he has to open a local checking account. Visit the post office in person to make sure he's going to receive his mail care of general delivery. I don't think they even do general delivery anymore. No, they haven't done general delivery in quite some time, yeah. I think. Um, he also discovers while he's at the post office that one of the locals has some pretty deadly BO, and that becomes a very big thing later <laughs> in the book. Um, nothing quite like somebody walking into ta- walking into the post office and literally clearing the building. Huh. Not a lot of fun. Uh, he also gets to deal with a hawk flying through his screen door when he first arrives. Tom I've- fixes everything. Flying through and crashing through the yeah, screen door? Yeah, crashing through the screen door as if he's after a rabbit. Missed it. Um, Those rabbits are just running around in the house. I pers- mean, obviously the hawk... The cats are having a grand old time. <laughs> um, so he also he also commits the uh, the city, again, quote-unquote, um, sin of calling the police when he hears what turns out to be a raccoon on the roof. Um, he reports <laughs> it to the police and gets not very politely laughed off the phone. But once the storm hits... He realizes that uh, the slightest issue for him is treated as an emergency by the local utilities, thanks to Francesca's insistence on immediate service, along with, well, lots of threats. Um, Lots of things of do it or I'll, uh, you know, get out there and do this or I will pull your license, blah, blah, blah. Ah, so she gets results. She gets results. She's not nice about it, but she gets results. her, her commentary on that is somewhere along the lines of you have to be firm with these country people or they go fishing and forget about you. Not that that is necessarily untrue, but I don't necessarily think you need to be threatening to pull people's license uh, licenses. Um, well, uh, also, who, willy she, nilly. she doesn't really have the authority to do that, so... Money is a great authority. You need to put that on a bumper sticker, I think. Yeah. I think we found our first podcast t-shirt. <laughs> we talk to some people at Redbubble or something. Money, something like that. money is the... He's the great authority. authority. Francesca Klingenschon. <laughs> anyway, so Quill is up here to write a book. Mm-hmm. He's finding that he's not necessarily motivated to do it, which runs into some other small problems because since Quill doesn't fish, hike, or sail, he's a bit at a loss of what else to do in Mooseville, which prides itself on all three. 
But he does manage to bond with Roger McGilvery at the tourist development. It should be tourism development, and they have a good laugh over it. Yay, grammar nerds. That's how, what's um, this gentleman's name again? Roger McGilvery. 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 Right. Lots of good Scottish names Clearly, as we come the, up into Moose County. It's the MAC. Yes. Um, so he meets him at the tourist development office uh, <laughs> and then later meets his mother-in-law, Mildred Hanstable, who's another excellent cook and who, by the way, reads palms on the side to raise money for the local hospital. Well, of course. Absolutely. And thanks to Roger, we also get introduced to the phrase hats on or hats off in regards to restaurants. As Roger defines it, if a place has a little bit of class, it's hats off. If it's the infamous foo the D fell off years ago, it's strictly hats on and the best <laughs> gossip in the county. Meanwhile, <laughs> shiny things are going missing in the cabin. Oh. Um, Quill is getting suspicious that handyman Tom, who's been sent by Francesca to fix whatever goes wrong, has been quietly stealing items such as a gold pen given, him, given to him by Rosemary, a watch given to him by the Antique Dealers Association, etc., etc. Quill does get several visits also from uh, Fanny's attorneys, which are Alexander and Penelope Goodwinter, brother and sister, and they are our first <laughs> introduction to the sprawling Goodwinter clan. Apparently, Fanny is responsible for most of the civic improvements in the county, mm -hmm. and Quill is noted as her only relative, even though it's not technically by blood. She has promised a lot to the city after her death, and the attorneys are very anxious to make sure that Quill has no complaints that might jeopardize their future. So they are very, very attentive. But Quill is still Quill, and he's nosy. <laughs> and again, not really inclined to write. So he spends a lot of his time eating out at the local restaurants and eavesdropping on his fellow tourists. Mm -hmm. He does attempt to visit the, lo the local historical cemetery, discovering a strange bucket hitting, hidden behind a gravestone and contracting the worst case of poison ivy anyone has ever seen, which necessitates a trip to the local walk-in clinic and introduces him to Dr. Melinda Goodwinter, um, our, our third Goodwinter. <laughs> Who, despite being described as very plain when he first walks in, apparently the shot he gives him is a really, the shot she gives him is a really good one. Because he's talking about her attractive green eyes and long eyelashes by the next paragraph. So this thing takes effect fast. Well, I, green eyes can be hypnotizing. True. Uh, but the fact that the, that it's literally a plain young woman sat at the desk. And then. And then by the time he's leaving, and he's rhapsodizing about her her attractive green eyes and curling eyelashes. And they, the, the description gets more and more attractive as the book goes on. That, like, well, like you said, it was a hell of a shot. Absolutely. Um, at one meal while he's out at the uh, Northern Lights Hotel, uh, a particularly whiny couple catches his ear and he ends up joining them for a suspiciously cheap fishing trip. $15 for six hours in the fog. Hmm. Not suspicious at all. No, 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 no. Especially no. in the fog. No. no yes, no, no, because no, no, no. when fogs roll in over the lake, they are all-encompassing. It's it, it would be a London pea souper, except it's not full. It, it's not the color of pea soup, but it's that level of thickness, and everything goes quiet. Mm -hmm. um, the yep. other thing that we learn is that voices carry over the lake, especially in the fog. Okay. So we hear a lot of... So sound is very important to this book. And we're setting up some things, I have a feeling Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Okay. Because we're heading out of the afternoon on the nearly decrepit boat named the Mini K. There's a reference there in there as well. And Quill <laughs> manages to catch something. Something that doesn't seem like a fish. And before he can reel in the heavy mass, uh, the skipper of his boat cuts the line and the boat turns around and heads in. Hmm. Talking with Roger later, Quill learns that no licensed boat would go out in the fog, obviously. Obviously. Clearly. But when Quill shares his suspicion that he might have brought up a human body, <laughs> Roger is the one quickly claiming, no, 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 must have been an old tire, and changes the subject to the turkey and his mother-in-law has left for Quill in the cabin. <laughs> 
Nothing suspicious to see here. Move along, move along, move along. Clearly, no, the fog, boys carry, everything else is the quiet hush. No, no dead body whatsoever. No dead body whatsoever. No, no, no. The cats, by the way, are are slowly adjusting to country life. Yum Yum enjoys bird watching and stealing the small shiny objects, as well as untying the shoelaces of any unsuspecting visitor. Yes, bird watching. Yes, she's watching. (laughs) And hunting, maybe. Yum yum. She's too fastidious for that. Coco, however, is indulging his more mechanical tastes. He's answering the phone uh, to the point that Quillerin has to keep the phone in a in a cabinet with a latch because Coco keeps knocking the uh, the, the receiver off. Um, and he's also playing the stereo, particularly a Brahms concerto. But um bum bum. There's our title of the book. There we go. Um, and a tape called 1930s Favorites that reveals that someone has been using the cabin, in, cabin for an unknown nefarious purpose. The tape in the middle of a song called Little White Lies reveals mm. a voice threatening someone that if they don't come up with more loot, they're going to be pay. They're going to have to pay. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Um, the plot is afoot. It is. Quill uh, continues to uh, try the to adjust. The game's afoot, the plot thickens. Yes, that's, the plot thickens, how, the game's afoot. That's how that phrase usually goes, yes. Luke. Moving on. <laughs> Quill continues to try and adjust the country life and takes out one of, the, one of the canoes on the lake. This goes about as well as predicted. By, him, by himself, obviously. By himself. Um, <laughs> but thanks to his neighbors, he safely makes it back to shore. And we meet Mildred Hanstable in person, who is a lovely teacher uh, in the Moose County school system, mm-hmm. who is the one who left the turkey for Quill and the cats. And Buck Dunfield, who is Mildred's neighbor. <laughs> Buck, by the way, is as nosy as Quill, and the men clearly have the start of a beautiful friendship. He's oh, a former good. detective from down below. He's the former police chief in Pickaxe City until he was ousted by Fanny. Um, and now, despite having lost his sense of smell, he's enjoying retirement, doing some woodworking to raise money for the hospital, encouraged by Mildred, and his candlesticks are sold in Mildred's daughter's Sharon's shop, which, try saying that. Sharon's shop? Yes. Sharon's shop, which is called Night's Candles. Um, <laughs> now, this is one thing about these books, and especially now that we have moved up to Pickaxe, the literary references go through the roof. This is a this is a subtle reference to the scene in Romeo and Juliet Night's candles are burnt out and Jock and Day stands tiptoe. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Um, mm, no. So there you have Night's candles and of course Sharon, the owner of said shop, is is ecstatic to meet somebody who recognizes that Night's candles is a quote. Um, <laughs> and Quill's knowledge of Shakespeare quotations um Early 20th century and late 18th century literature is astonishing, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it plays a huge role in all of the books later. So this is our first encounter with his almost encyclopedic knowledge of Shakespeare. Hmm. Um, Curious that we never saw that before. Until... Exactly. Hmm. So things that are coming out as Quill is getting older and more established in his character, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So Sharon, uh, Sharon Hanstable sells... Candlesticks, um, as well as other touristy items. Um, one of her best sellers, however, is a giant paperclip, uh, paperclip shaped money clip in, in, in a gold tone. This is very important later. Um, paperclip money clip. Gold yes. Tone. Write that down. Buck has one and Quill sees it and thinks it's a great looking money clip. So he goes to see if he can get one. Unfortunately, they've all sold out for Father's Day. Buck stops by for a promised drink, bringing with him meatloaf from Mildred, and they gossip about her absentee husband, hmm. who the absentee husband owns the local turkey farm and is, in short, not a nice character. Buck also shares his suspicions about some of the local crimes being conveniently overlooked because they're done by locals, and that hogties the local police. Huh. He and the cats correctly predict yet another storm over the lake. 
Um, I think we're at three if you include the nasty fogs. Mm -hmm. And he heads home for the night. Buck heads home. Buck heads home for the night. Quill's already at home because they were meeting. That's right. Obviously, obviously, yes, 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 yes. And the next morning, sirens race up the lane because Buck has been found dead in his wood shop with his head smashed in with one of his own candlesticks. Oh. Quill then demands that Fanny gets the lock, gets locks, any kind of locks on the cabin doors. Turns out that since Mooseville doesn't have a locksmith, the job falls to an engineer who works at the prison, who's married to the postmistress. This, so there's a prison in, in there is the state prison is the up state in Moose, prison the state is, prison is up in Moose County. <laughs> By the way, it's famous for its flower gardens. The prison is the prison is. <laughs> um, this is our introduction to Dominic Nick Bamba and his wife Lori. Lori and Nick Bamba. Yeah, Nick and Lori Bamba. Oh boy. It's a good example of country gossip and how that chain works, that despite the body only being found a few hours ago, the whole county knows about it, Mm. mostly due to the um, church grapevine being alive and well. Um, (laughs) Nick explains that Lori heard it in the choir loft, and he heard it from one of the ushers during during the uh, the passing. Ah. So then, of course, it just spread so quickly from there. Yes. So when Nick comes up to take a look at the locks and see if he can um, get some locks in there, uh, he already he already knows what's going on. Then we have a surprise visit. I mean, she was invited, but we didn't actually know when she was going to happen because we get a visit from Rosemary, oh, the cat who saw red. Mm-hmm. A firm date was never set, but she's appeared now, bringing with her the bearskin rug that the cats love so much from <laughs> Mouse House. Very sweet. Wonderful. Not speaking well of Quill's character, at first description, he thinks it's another tenant from Mouse House and has a brief paragraph of jealousy before he realizes it's a rug. How you are mistaking a polar bear skin rug for a bald man, Max Sorrel, in case you're keeping track, is who he thought it was. Um, How you're mixing up the two, I truly, truly don't understand. So the cats remain their cool, aloof self. They've never quite warmed up to Rosemary. Oh, Um, that's right. That's right. Despite, however, she's doing a little bit better this time, she offers catnip. Oh. Um, but then she tells Quill that he should grate fresh carrot into their into their food, which they studiously avoid. Um, and she doesn't believe Quill when he tells her about the strange things he keeps encountering. She also goes to sleep in the second bedroom, which is a bit of a surprise, but I guess she's old-fashioned that way. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but okay. a scare... And how big is this cabin? It's a two-bedroom cabin. Okay, I did... Two-bedroom, two-bath. I hear cabin, I think, you know, rustic and one-bedroom maybe if you're lucky, but it's just a giant open space. Mostly a giant open space with two bedrooms off of it and then uh, the open plan into the kitchen. But then again, if this is Aunt, uh, Aunt Fanny, Fanny's cabin, yes. I'm sure there's a few luxuries. More than a few. <laughs> um, there's a lot of conversation about how much this cabin could be worth, um, especially for the beachfront property. So, Rosemary's first night there... Um, there is a terrible scream outside. And once again, they call the police only to be told it's an owl who caught a rabbit. <laughs> um, and that finally sends her to Quillerin's bedroom, much to uh, Quillerin's satisfaction. And by the way, much to the cat's satisfaction. They've been sleeping in the second bedroom and they did not appreciate Rosemary oh, taking their bed. Oh, no, I can imagine. Um, there's, there's this moment where she very bewilderingly says to Quillerin, the cats seem to think I've taken their bed. Well, you did. You have taken their bed. <laughs> Cats don't like to be moved, especially from their sleeping. Uh, no, that's that's their spot. Um, in the morning, Rosemary further cements her status as worst guest ever because she goes through Quillerin's pantry and throws out what she deems, quote unquote, bad food. Remember, this is the health food lady. Processed sugar. Fat. High fructose corn syrup. Exactly. Gone. Most particularly, Fanny had given Quill uh, some wonderful cinnamon rolls that he had been reheating and having for breakfast every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are gone. Mm-hmm. 
completely and utterly gone. Um, but fortunately, Mildred Hansible steps up with a dinner and tarot card invitation, which she offers after she turns down Quill's invitation for her and her husband to join him and Rosemary for a dinner out, um, claiming that the husband is too busy at the turkey farm. Um, instead, during that day, Rosemary goes to view the flower gardens at the prisons, which are said to be spectacular. Yes. And Quill heads off to the Foo for a copy of the local paper and local gossip. Hmm. Uh, he meets Roger again, who introduces him to Junior Goodwinter. We're up to four Goodwinters four. now. Uh, the managing editor of said local paper, the Pickaxe Picayune. I had to re- look up how to pronounce Pickax it. Pickaxe Picayune. 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 Um, the name means, uh, the, the, the term Picayune means something of little value or worthless. Which is a great name for a paper. I was going to say they hold their paper in very high Indeed they do. Indeed (laughs) they do. Junior, by the way, is the son of Senior Goodwinter. We're up to five. Um, And those are their actual names. Senior is his actual name. Yes. He is named Senior Goodwinter. Uh, It's not Senior Goodwinter? No. No. Senior. Senior. Well, that... Senior um, and junior, and then I'm sure if there's a third one that, of that line, it'll just be called thir- the third. <laughs> or something else. Um, anyway, so junior is the son of Senior Goodwinter. Senior Goodwinter, by the way, um, is the uh, is the typesetter for the Picayune, and he has been since he was 12 years old. They lit- they, they still hand-set the type for the oh, paper. Wow. Um, this, this paper was founded in 1859 and really hasn't been updated since, so the type is still being set by hand, and that's really no wonder since it only covers chicken dinners and for sale items along with the occasional quote-unquote incident, which is how the death of Buck Dunfield is described. An incident. Yes. <laughs> they don't have crime. They have incidents. This, is, this isn't this is going to become some secret society trying to win Best Village or something, is it? As far as I know, no. Okay. Simon Pegg's not going to show up Not at all. as far as all I right. know. I mean, we have uh, a lot of books to get through. You never we, know. We do. Um, and, you know, and maybe if it had continued, Simon Pegg might have made a, uh, <laughs> might, might, Nicholas, made a cameo. Nicholas Angel would show up. There you go. Anyway. Um, Roger tries to claim ignorance about Buck's history in Mooseville, enemies, personal vendettas, etc. Uh, and he, then he needles Quill about his illegal fishing trip on the Mini K. But then Quill reveals that he looked for the boat once the fog had cleared and reveal, and discovers that its name had been changed to the Seagull with a backward S. Hmm. Um, and they theorize that's probably because they want to claim ignorance if they're caught operating legally. Interesting. Well, and the boat was originally named what again? The Mini K. The Mini K. That's... Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. The and Minnie K, by the way, is Minnie Klingenshun, who is the grandmother of Fanny Klingenshun. After after his uh, encounter, after his uh, coffee and uh, terrible coffee and good gossip at the Foo, Quill returns to the cemetery now that he knows what poison ivy looks like <laughs> um, to see if he can find that mis- that mysterious bucket again. And he finds signs that it's being used for some kind of purpose. There's straw left behind. Things have been moved around from the way that he left it. Hmm. Um, and there's indications that something was packed in the pail and then removed. In the same bucket. In the same bucket. Huh. Coco now is being helpful and he pushes a book of marine history off the shelf while Rosemary is uh, out walking on the beach before dinner. And Quill discovers some of the shipwreck history on the lake and rumors of treasures that went down with these ships. Hmm. Uh, and it's marked with a receipt for a boat rental signed S. Hanstable. This spurs a memory from one of the letters that he got from Aunt Fanny, mentioning that she had rented the cabin the previous summer to two men who claimed to be marine historians, uh, but t- turned out to be partiers. There are descriptions of spaghetti stuck to the walls and it clean up taking two weeks, which is why she offered the cabin to Quill for the summer. Ah, okay. Quill's instinct leads him to approach two men that Roger identified as shipwreck scavengers to see if their voices match the one on the tape he found, and he begins to think that there's a scavenging plot using Fanny's cabin as a base. Rosemary, of course, says he's being ridiculous and continues to belittle Coco when he keeps pulling out the black tulips from her arrangement. Quill personally thinks there is no reason that a tulip should be black. 
I, tulips can be different colors. It though, right? can certainly be very different colors. Black tulips are extremely rare and very mm-hmm. cultivated. Um, so Coco's throwing, Coco's picking out the expensive ones, but <laughs> remembering that in theory, cats can't see colors. There's something off on, on the vibe there. Quill continues to be polite with Rosemary, despite her determination to change his sturdy diet for more healthy fare. Mm. He also takes her to a museum where he meets up with Roger, who identifies the S. Hanstable signature as his father-in-law, Stanley, not his wife, Sharon, who's also an S. Hanstable, um, and confirms that he does not, that, that Stanley has a boat that he could have rented to the wreck drivers in the previous summer. And then Rosemary and Quill go and have lunch with Fanny in her home in Pickaxe the following day. This is, again, a hundred-year-old house, biggest house on Pickaxe Circle, mm-hmm. and then it's divide and conquer. Quill goes for a walk, and he finds out the houseman is buying large amounts of liquor in small bottles, hmm. small enough, by the way, to fit in the mysterious bucket, and he learns a bit of county history. The Klingenshuns didn't make their money in mining like most of the families who, are, who have houses on Pickaxe Circle. Um, they made their money in saloon-keeping. Okay. They then, of course, built the biggest house in town to thumb their nose at the local society uh, <laughs> that tried to exclude them. Unfortunately, they also then lost all of their money, and uh, the house was abandoned until Fanny came back from her time in New Jersey with more money than God and has been rebuilding the family legacy. Now, why was she in New Jersey? You'll see. <laughs> Rosemary then stays with Aunt Fanny, and she learns that she enjoys manipulating the whole county into doing exactly what she wants. Also that she really, really hated Buck Dunfield, because he, of course, wouldn't be manipulated. Mm-hmm. No. Man of the law, very studious. So lots of, lots of, lots of ping, ping, ping of uh, important story points there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on the way home, Rosemary suggests that they stop at the turkey farm and see if they've got a dressed bird that she can then throw in the oven for dinner. Um... It's revealed then that one of the employees at the turkey farm is the source of the terrible B.O. that Quill smelled earlier. Uh, and poor Rosemary really does nearly vomit at the smell. Oh, boy. It's just wow. awful. Um, Nick and Lori Bamba come for a visit at the cabin. Quill shares some of the uh, strange voices he's heard coming from the lake. And that's where we really learn that apparently sound carries extremely well over the water in a mm. fog. Nick identifies one of the voices as an inmate who escaped the prison a few weeks ago. English accents apparently aren't particularly common in this part of the country. (laughs) And he reveals to Quill that there is an escape racket from the prison. Inmates escape and pay a certain local skipper good money to take them across the lake to Canada. But once they're about halfway out, the inmates are dumped overboard. And And because the water is so cold, Mm -hmm. their bodies are never found. They go in once, but they don't come back up. Exactly. Oh, so we don't just... know who the, we don't know who the skipper is. We've got rumors, but nothing but nothing concrete. Oh wow! And Nick knows there's a contact in the prison, but he doesn't know who. <laughs> Quill then feels validated in his hunches, and he feels that Buck's death was due to his investigation into the racket, which is turns out to be very correct. The story then takes a sharp turn away from the racket, however, because Aunt Fanny has been found dead. What? She had a. She fell down the down the grandiose staircase of her house and broke her neck. Oh, and died. she fell down, huh? Hmm. This news then causes Quill to be overly cautious with the cabin. He's closing all the shutters, locking the doors, as well as basically at this point, after five weeks, he's planning to move back to the city once the proper respects have been pay, paid to poor Fanny. Oh, poor it's, Fanny. It has not. It has not been a good summer. No goodness. All um, people, it's a Jessica Fletcher situation. It, all these so, people started dying the and minute he arrives. Yes, exactly. This is. Very suspicious. And at the request of Penelope and Alexander Goodwinter, Quill and Rosemary then head back to Pickaxe to help them hunt for Fanny's will, which is missing. Hmm. During their search, it's discovered that when Fanny refers to her um, club work in New Jersey, she's not referring to garden parties. 
She was a successful burlesque performer and eventually owned her own burlesque club. Oh, my. And that is where she made all of her money. Okay. Uh, their first day searching doesn't reveal the will, but they stop for lunch at the Foo, um, and Quill learns that Fanny may have promised to buy the restaurant, among her many, many other promises. To leave money to, to leave to money the to entire, various to people. The entire town, basically. Um, one of the other things is, in later books, we'll discover that there are a lot of Francesca's and Fanny's um, because at one point, uh, Fanny put out a rumor that anyone who named their child after her would get a bequest in her will. Oh. So many, many promises that mm-hmm. this woman has been making. And um, really? we don't know at this point if she has any plans of keeping. Um, we get back to the cabin and the cats are on the porch. Quill and Rosemary decide having been locked in the cabin when they left. And that's because the rug is covered in blood and somebody has clearly come looking for some incriminating recordings that Coco made, leaving behind a distinctive gold paperclip style money clip. Oh. And as I said, blood on the rug. Uh-huh. Um, the rest of that blood is attached to Coco's claws because he jumped down from the moose head that's over the fireplace and attacked the intruder. Uh-huh. These cats are very defensive of their yes, property they are. and of their owner, which is very nice. After that, Quill really refuses to leave the cats alone, and so he takes them to pickaxe with him and Rosemary the next day. So they continue their search for Fanny's will. Um, wisely, Quill lets Coco out to help with the search, and he leads them right to the giant safe in the basement of the mansion, where the wills turned out to be kept, mm-hmm. along with some jewelry and a small green address book. Quill keeps the address book, but turns the rest over to the attorneys, and, head ba- and they head back to the cabin. Once they return to the cabin, Rosemary goes to a, for a walk. She's contemplating a business offer she's just received for her health food store and deciding where she wants to go with her life. Um, and Quill, while he left alone, contemplates that their relationship is not working out well. Mm. He misses his pipe. He misses not feeling guilty for wanting to eat a steak instead of broiled fish sprinkled with kelp. And uh. it annoys him that she refuses to treat Coco as anything other than an ordinary cat. At this point, he also discovers who the thief of those small items from the cabins actually is. It's Yum Yum. She's been hiding no all of her loop under the cabin under the cabin sofas. Now, not really a surprise. So the next day, it's Fanny's memorial service. Everyone, and I do mean everyone, is there. <laughs> well, um, they want to make sure she pays up. Exactly. Or make sure that she's really dead. We're not really sure which. <laughs> um, there's an, a quill lightly ribs uh, Junior Goodwinter for the overly florid obituary in the uh, in, in the Picayune. Um, and Junior replies that this is actually a collector's item in Moose County. And there is actually an obituary club with an annual newsletter and members who have over 500 obituaries collected. <laughs> so this is a thing. In small towns where you don't have anything else to do, I guess. Apparently, if you're just collecting anything, pretty much. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there was a note at the bottom of the obituary suitable for framing. (laughs) Anyway, um, after the service, Rosemary gets in her car and leaves. Um, She has prepared the turkey that she purchased for the cats, but that's about the end of it. While left alone, Quill starts to look through the address book and discovers that it's filled not with addresses, but with secrets. Who's a drunk? Who's sleeping around? And other skeletons in the local closets, including his own his own rather sordid history. Quill's own history, exactly. From his time in pickaxe. Uh, no, from everything? his from his time before. It talks about his himself, him as a recovering alcoholic, ah, and okay. his success as a writer and everything that he's so done it's before. Everything, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, it's yes. all the secrets. Um, but there, and then he realizes there's a funny thing about the turkey. While Yum Yum will eat it just fine, Coco avoids it like the plague. Hmm. Rosemary then calls from the road to tell Quillen that the man with the terrible B.O. at the turkey farm had a gold paperclip money clip like the one that they ended up finding in the cabin um, after the intruder was there. And she cautions Quill about following his, his hunches, which, of course, he promptly does anyway. Of course. <laughs> um, 
he discovers the source of the B.O. and the cabin's intruder. Uh, at the turkey farm, the man reeks, and he's covered in horrible scratches that are clearly from Coco's claws across his head. Mm. Poe goads the man by returning his paperclip and is promptly attacked with a knife, but he is then saved by Tom the houseboy. Oh. And it turns out that the man with B.O. and horrible scratches is Stanley Hanstable, Mildred's husband. Stanley is then arrested, uh, and Tom tells Quill that Stanley made him buy made him buy the liquor that he was that he was buying for Stanley to smuggle to the inmates in the bucket in the cemetery. Um, so he would so Tom excuse me to explain that a little bit more clearly. Tom would buy the liquor. He would leave it in the bucket in the cemetery. Stanley would come collect it, and since the bottles were small, Stanley was able to hide them in the turkeys that he would then deliver to the prison. Because he had the because pri- he had the contract to del- to, to provide right. turkey mm-hmm. to the prison. Now here's the thing: Tom doesn't read, so in order hmm. to leave any notes, Stanley would have to record his instructions on the tape in the cabin for Tom to listen to when he came to clean. Oh, okay. And as a thank you for saving his life, Quill gives Tom a brass inkwell from the cabin. Technically, yes, it's not his to give, but it's not like Fanny will mind at this She's point. well, yeah, not going to complain She's for kind obvious of, reasons. Kind of beyond, kind of beyond caring. She's right kind now. of dead. Yes. Um, <laughs> Tom leaves, and the Goodwinner attorneys arrive. Uh, mm. They have gone through the will, and they have some news for Quill. Despite some earlier wills leaving Fanny's fortune to the community or a foundation in Atlantic City, the most recent will actually leaves her entire estate to Quill. Oh, my. So, there are some provisios. He has to live in pickaxe for five years. Um, <laughs> actually, actually has to live there. Um, at, during that time, uh, there is a trust set up for him, um, and he... Basically, it's a, you have to survive five years in pickaxe, and then all the money is yours. Then every cent is, goes to you. <laughs> now, all, all of a sudden, Quill has suddenly gone from frugal newsman to back county billionaire. <laughs> and then they tell him that if he declines, the whole estate goes to Atla- the Atlantic City Foundation, leaving Moose County with nothing. Oh, no. So Quill is now having to make this decision on the fly of, do I keep the money? Do, uh, do, do I, do I move up here and keep the money and keep it in, in, in town? Or do I, do I say Just no get free. and get off scot-free? Um, and because when it rains, it pours, he's also dealing with two offers that have just come in from both of the papers from the city of no name. From um, the Daily Fluxion and the And the Morning Rampage. rampage. <laughs> yeah. Both papers have decided to call him and offer him his dream investigative reporting job with a finely decent salary and benefits, a company car, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, All of the things that he, if he were still, if we still had indications that he wanted to be a newsman more than anything, this would be a really tempting offer. Oh, very much so. Um, but it's very clear that Quill's perspective and priorities are changing because he doesn't immediately jump on the offer. By the way, the one for the morning rampage turned out to be the better offer. Um, <laughs> Quill really stops and thinks about this um, because Roger shows up and uh, kind of bitterly congratulates Quill on his good fortune and bemoans the loss of all of the promises that Fanny made, including to Roger the, the loss of a promised marine preserve to keep uh, to keep the scavengers from looting the shipwrecks. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger also shares a little bit more information about Stanley and Mildred's relationship and that Buck and Mildred were likely sleeping together. Mm. Mil- uh, Buck would not be the first person that Mildred slept with, only the unluckiest in this case. Yeah, clearly. Um, because, of course, Stanley found out and then he killed Buck. Now, we've mentioned before that Stanley has terrible BO. So one would think that it would be very hard to sneak up on someone like that. But also remember, Buck lost his sense of smell. 
That's, oh, yes, you're right. So without a sense of smell, he wasn't going to smell that. And mm-hmm. if he was working down in his workshop where he was turning wood with, with the big machines, he wouldn't have heard him either. So that's how Stanley gets in to kill Buck. Roger leaves. Quill goes to dinner, comes back, and there's a pickup on fire in his driveway. What? Turns out it's Tom's pickup. Uh-oh. And Tom is in Quill's shed and dead. Tom left a recorded confession in the cabin who, where he admits that he's the one who pushed Fanny down the stairs because Stanley told him to. Because Fanny had promised that she'd leave him everything. She was, he was like a son to her. Mm-hmm. And when he realized that she wasn't going to, he couldn't live with it. He couldn't live with the guilt of having pushed her down the stairs and realize he's still going to end up with nothing. So he sets his pickup on fire. And he shoots himself with Fanny's pistol. And we still don't know by the end of the book whether or not Quill decides to take the money. Okay, and that's the end of the that book? That is the end of the book. Good lord! <laughs> God, suddenly it's like all light and fluffy, then it's Werner Herzog movie. <laughs> Jeez. God, so that's how, it, that's how it ends. That's how it ends. Where's the... Do you have the book? Yeah. Like, is it out here? Yeah. All right, so... I wanted to see. I want to read like the last sentence while this is because that's just a turn. Let me. Let me. May, may okay. I? So here's the thing. To be fair, um, the uh, there there are um, a couple of pages beyond that. Um, the last page goes like this: abruptly, in the middle of a phrase, the music was replaced by the spoken word, the gentle voice of Tom. I did it. I pushed her. She was a nice old lady. She was my friend. It was a choked sob. He told me to do it. He said I'd get a lot of money to buy a nightclub. He said we would be partners. She promised me the money. She promised to leave me everything. She said I was like her son. Why did she say it? She didn't mean it. The voice trailed away and the mic picked up the roar of the wind and the waves and the cry of a cat. And then it cut out and the music resumed with the plaintive theme and the solo violin. And the isolation of his soul crept in at that moment. Good there's also a letter to Arch Riker here, by the way, um, and, and some oh, other... Arch Riker wrote a letter? That's, you're leaving that out? Okay, so here's, so here's what the letter to Arch says. He's, Quill is writing a letter the to letter Arch. letter to Arch, okay. We, we've had a couple of letters to Arch through the course of this book, which has been fun. Um, dear Arch, um, Arch, by the way, has just called and uh, offered Quill the investigative the job. Right. The investigative job. Um, dear Arch, your news on the telephone has left me in a state of terminal shock. Now I have news for you. The Rampage has made a better offer, and they have a prettier managing editor. Do you think Percy is prepared to make the terms? There's been a little excitement here. We had uh, a B&E breaking and entering at the cabin, and Coco bloodied the burglar. I almost got knifed by the same man. He killed one of our neighbors last weekend. And Fanny, Fanny died suddenly on Thursday, and her houseman shot himself yesterday in my tool shed. Otherwise, it's been a quiet vacation. There is just one little problem. The new assignment sounds great, but I've just found out that I'm the sole heir to Aunt Fanny's sizable fortune. Naturally, there's a catch. I have to live in pickaxe. What to do? What to do? You won't believe a word of this, and I don't blame you. Quill. (laughs) Wow. This, yeah, this takes a very interesting turn. It really does. It's, Jesus. Interest. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I just was not expecting any of, like, this... (laughs) leaving this fortune and everything and then this poor this poor this poor guy killing himself and just everything else god so there's a lot of victims in this there there really are we have um we have buck dunfield we have at fanny we have tom and we also have untold inmates from the state prison who have been roped into this uh, this scam lake is just 
filled with dead with, bodies, with dead prisoners, and, and and well, and not just prisoners. I mean, remember that it's full of shipwrecks too. So that's true. There's yeah. a lot of death between in that the, lake. Uh, God, wow, this is a so the pickaxe is starting off strong in the kill count. It absolutely Very is Very much so. Jeez, yeah. Um, one fun thing that people like to do uh, is play Where in the World is Pickaxe? Um, <laughs> consensus seems to say that it's modeled somewhat after Badaxe, Michigan, which okay. is where Braun lived until the mid-80s, which makes sense. Um, Braun herself claimed that it's an amalgamation of a lot of places that she lived, including her home in North Carolina, especially as the books get later. Um, that You get more of a sense of, 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 of Asheville-esque gotcha. if you've ever been in that particular area of the country. Um, one quick thing. In the beginning of the book, it is mentioned that Coco has his portrait in the lobby of the press club with the Pulitzer Prize winners, and Coco has his own press card, signed by the chief of police. We never find out how this happens. So somewhere between the books. Somewhere between the cat who saw red and the cat who played Brahms, maybe because of the cat who saw red, um, Coco is now revered as as an important figure. In the club, in the press club, In the press club. Now, this does come back in a couple of books, um... In the next five or six books, where Quill is kind of adjusting to to life, life in the country, mm-hmm. um, we kind of go back and forth, and we we get visitors from down below, we get uh, connections made, excuse me, um, and and so it does get talked about a lot that Coco had his picture up in the press club, mm-hmm. uh, but it's never mentioned how that happened. <laughs> it's left up to the imagination of the reader. Exactly. Um, Fun thing, Quillen's expanding his pocket tokens. Um, at this point, we have collected a jade button that we received in the Cataway Danish Modern. We have a clay scarab made by Joy from the Cat Who Saw Red. And now Rosemary gave him a scrimshaw carving of a cat. About hmm. the size of a button. Very old. Nice little antique that she found while she oh, was nice, hunting. Nice, t- nice, like you said, totem. To keep yeah, a nice little totem to keep in his pockets. Yeah. Um, other notes, Melinda Goodwitter. She becomes a very odd case in Quillerin's dating history. Obviously, things with Rosemary are not working out. Clearly. Um, they've both gone their separate ways, like the adults that they are. All for the best. Um, but Melinda's an oddball. She's described as plain at first, but as but becomes descriptively more conventionally attractive as the book goes on. And, despite, and as he takes more drugs. and Or just more interest. Um, <laughs> and despite Quill's history of not dating, quote-unquote, pushy females, Melinda somehow circumvents that. She is pushy. She is aggressive. She is blatantly flirtatious. flirtatious. Lots of cracks about his age and how she likes older men. All of the things <laughs> that he has very clearly rejected in previous books. And there's no nothing to save her. She doesn't need a savior. She's, huh. She is an independent woman who is, you know, currently manning the clinic in Mooseville, eventually going to uh, join her father, another good winter, um, in oh, his uh, pickaxe practice. She, um, she don't need no quill. She don't need, even with his millions and millions of dollars. Oh, she's she's, she's got doing things. Fine. She's doing fine on her own. Um, this book also introduces um, another running gag. In uh, in Moose County, and that is the introduction of the pasty. The, the introduction of the pasty. The introduction of the pasty. Now, if you are familiar with the pasty, you know it looks like it's spelled pasty, but it is pronounced pasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get in this book, we get the delightful, flaky, turnipless version at the nasty pasty, <laughs> and the giant, soggy-bottomed Paul and Prue would not approve. Oh no! no filled no. with turnip incarnation at the food diner. 
Quill has a distinct preference, and it turns out that it's a source of community argument as to whether or not the turnip is traditional or not. Uh, this turns into a whole big thing culminating in one particular book later in the series where they have a, pace, a pasty cook-off. <laughs> and I cannot wait till we get there so we can talk about food a lot more because that one's going to be fun. Well, speaking of food, there's a lot of food in this book. There's a lot of turkey, at least. A very lot of- much. Turkey is is very popular in the books um, here, most you know, particularly because we have the turkey farm. Mm-hmm. Um, later, there's some discussion of there used to be wild turkeys in Moose County. Oh. Um, so turkey is a big thing. Clearly. So, also so much for the book in this book. Despite being constantly asked, Quill doesn't even start in his book. He's getting annoyed that people keep asking about it. Still working on that novel? Still working on that novel, Still yeah. working on that novel? Yeah. I, I mean, and Fanny calls him. He's been there two days. And Fanny calls him and says, so many, how many pages have you written? <laughs> Every writer I know would want to reach through the phone and, and strangle anybody that. for doing that. Now... They say what type, they give any hint at what type of book he's writing, if it's a fiction or... I mean, originally his idea his idea was to write a crime novel, lots of sex and violence, um, which actually, as I'm, real, as I'm saying that, I'm realizing is a fun little, uh, is, a, is a fun little rib to the, uh, to the idea that, uh, that the publisher wanted uh, LJB to include more sex and violence in her novels, <laughs> and that's why she stopped writing. Um, so Quillerin is off is going to go off and write the sex and violence novel. Except but he never gets around. He never to gets it. around to that. He does end up writing uh, writing a book or two. Um, it should be mentioned later in the series, but they're nothing like what he expects that he's going to do, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Nice. Um, and then we have Rosemary. Mm. Oh, Rosemary! And this is this is the last time we see Rosemary. I believe so. Um, Understandable. We shall see. Um, but Rosemary, you do not understand cats, especially one like Coco. She keeps trying to do things like, as I said before, give them carrots. Raw carrots grated. Yeah, great, their... grating carrots mm-hmm. into their into their corned beef. The cats eat around them as they are doing. <laughs> she also then tries to punish Coco for pulling out the black tulips. She punishes him by locking him in the bathroom. Ooh. Anyone that's... who's had a cat will tell you that's a terrible idea because Coco predict- predictably shreds the toilet paper and the tissues. Yep. Mm-hmm. This creates a bigger mess and does not uh, uh, end well at all. Yeah, and he all, and Coco also gets sneaky. He begins following her around and maneuvering his tail under her foot so he can howl whenever she steps on them. <laughs> Leaving Coco is amused. Rosemary is becoming a nervous wreck. Quill tries to tell her that in a battle with the Siamese, you never win. <laughs> Let the Siamese win. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, boy. Murder. There's a lot of murder and mystery in this one. This Very is, much so. I know it's a it's a series about murder mystery, but this one, like, it really kicked it up quite a few notches, I feel like, from the past few. It really did. And the murder and the mystery are very intertwined here, um, along with our introduction to a whole new location, which mm-hmm. is why my summary for this is so freaking long. Well, you have to... There's a lot to cover in this because, yes, it's yes. a new town, it's new characters, it's a whole new everything. Exactly. And, and again, you know, it... In previous books, we've had a mystery and we've had the murder. And while in things like, you know, maybe the uh, the cat who turned on and off, the two are combined, the murder is much simpler in the cat who turned on and off. Something like this, we've got multiple layers to the mystery and the murder. We've got we've got the uh, the, the convict escape pipeline. We've got the the smuggling of liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've got the uh, we've got the the scavenger divers. Right. And everything kind of centers around this cabin that Quill has suddenly managed to find himself in the middle of. Um, and you know, assuming that most people are in prison for a good reason. Um, uh-huh. In, in the in the magical world of Moose County, we're going to assume that nobody is in prison without a without a darn good reason. Uh huh. Um, so 
we assume that these are not nice characters that Quill is now dealing with. No. And uh, he he does barely manage to outsmart them and gets very lucky that Tom is there to save him from his being knifed by Stanley. Yes. <laughs> so, more so than the city, it feels like, you know, in the city it feels like he trips over the mysteries, but in Moose County... It's almost like he's actually looking for the shady side. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's nosy to begin with, but he's actually but trying to hunt this trying down. Trying to turn something up as exactly what, something to make as a reporter or, something to make life more interesting. I was going to say more so that because it seems very, he seems like he's not doing well to the small town life. No, sitting and relaxing apparently is not his thing. Who knew? No. Now, what's the paw rating you would give on this one? Ah, my paw rating. I do give this three paws. Three. There are some confusing aspects. The ending does feel a little bit rushed, and it cuts off in an odd place, as you mentioned. It's not even that it feels, uh, like, rushed. It's just, this took a turn. Well, yeah, because we're, we're going along to one to one thing, and then suddenly Fanny's dead, and then Fanny's memorial service, and then Quill inherits the money, and then suddenly he figures out who's who's the, who, who's been murdering people, and everything is happening, and then, and, the, and then suddenly... Have, and then we have the suicide in the burning, in the burning truck, and... Exactly. <laughs> that being said... I'm glad to see the last of Rosemary. <laughs> you did not care for her. You know, she she strikes me at first when when she first appears is like, oh, okay, this is going to be somebody who's a little bit calmer, a better influence than the thirty year old. Then he claims they're thirty. I'm pretty sure they were in their twenties when he meets them, career girls that he's had in the first couple of books. So having someone of his own age, not necessarily a bad thing. But mm-hmm. Rosemary is just so diametrically opposed to Quill's lifestyle. Well, and also fighting and arguing with the cats. That's not going to end well. You know, when you get into a relationship someone there, with someone, there's there is trying to improve them and their diet, um, and then there's basically telling them, "No, you can't have that anymore." <laughs> Which always is a good idea. Yeah. 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 But then we also see uh, quite a few new people exactly in this as well too, with new friends. Uh, you know, we have uh, the, we have Nick and Lori Bamba. Sharon, by, uh, by the way, yep. Side note: Lori Bamba is is the cat whisperer of this bo- of these books. She at any time that Quill is having trouble with the cats, you know how we had the psychiatrist, and so now she's the point, cat whisperer. We have we have Laurie the cat whisperer. So she's the Jackson Galaxy of pickaxe, you can say precisely. <laughs> so we also add Roger and Sharon and Mildred into the mix, and mm-hmm. all of these people place pretty significant roles throughout the course of the series. Great. They're the, the main core of, of Quillerland's friend group that that he develops, which is really nice. Um, and let's also uh, not forget, of course, the Good Winters. I'm sure we're oh, going to be we're seeing going them to see plenty of Good Winters as <laughs> we continue on. Now, there's one character that is missing from this story, and I have a feeling he's we're not going to see him again, and that's Odd Bunsen. Unfortunately, yes, Odd oh. Bunsen. Um, at least as of now. Now, I I cannot say this for sure because I do not remember. There are at least two or three books where Quill goes back down below for various reasons. Hmm. I do not remember if Odd Bunsen pops up again. With his but six we, kids. With his six kids. <laughs> um, who knows? By the time we see him again, there could be eight. Who, wow. Could have had twins. Maybe it's just four exactly. sets of twins. Who there knows? There you go. So we'll, so we'll keep an eye out for Odd Bunsen in later books. Bunsen Watch will commence uh, from this time <laughs> forward. Well, any uh, other thoughts on the cat who played Brahms, my dear? <sighs> again, for a short book... Dense. It's dense. Very mystery. dense. This is one of the longest uh, summaries that you put together for this one. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot to cover in this book. And like you said, it's in a new location. It's a new world. And so we're kind of establishing that. Exactly. No- normally I can leave out little side little side details and things like that. But this, all of the side details end up playing into the murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, 
either the murder or the mystery. And the the two become so important that you can't, if you're doing yeah, an accurate subject, so, yeah, you can't so leave intertwined. them out. So with any luck, um, I've started on the uh, the next one, and we'll see if it's not quite as long this time. <laughs> but it's been fun. And it's it's really great to, to have that feeling of coming back to Moose County. And sure. while the city always felt unsettled, even with the brief encounters with Mooseville and Pickaxe, it feels like coming home. It's wonderful. It's it's a really great environment to come back to, even if it's very clearly a very deadly place to be. From the onset, yes. And this is the tone we have. It's just going to be murder after murder after murder. Indeed. <laughs> From here on out. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast. And join us next time for The Cat Who Played Post Office, mm. when we find out if Quill takes the money and the chance at a new life for him and the cats. <laughs> well, until next time, I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry. And happy sleuthing. Thank you.